0: The first performance of Elgar's first symphony, in 1908, was one of the greatest triumphs in English music. There were thunderous ovations for the composer, wonderful reviews, and nearly a hundred performances within the next year. And the conductor, Hans Richter, called it simply, the greatest symphony of modern times. The premiere of the second symphony, just three years later, was, if anything, still more important for Elgar. He told his close confidante Alice Stewart Wortley that there were three works he'd recently composed. The Second Symphony, the Violin Concerto, and the Cantata, The Music Makers, in which, as he put it, I had written out my soul. And of the Second Symphony in particular, he wrote, I worked at fever heat, and the thing is tremendous in energy. You can sense that energy right from the start. The opening's like a gigantic springboard. You feel the tensing of the muscles, and then the music plunges into action. but its premiere in 1911 was a terrible disappointment. If Elgar had written out his soul, if he'd shown himself as never before, it seems the public didn't like it. The critics were lukewarm or even hostile. One reviewer accused Elgar of pessimism and rebellion. This from the composer of the Pomp and Circumstance Marches? Well, was this just a misunderstanding? Could it be that people had sensed something deeper in the music, something that made them uncomfortable? Let's compare it with the first symphony. There's plenty of troubled music there, but at the same time there's a sweeping logic. The whole thing makes sense from start to finish, and it builds finally to a massive reinforcement of the theme from the opening, the theme Helgar explicitly associated with glad, confidence and massive hope for the future. All this would have been exactly the kind of thing that the English public would have wanted to have here in the go-ahead Edwardian age. <laughs> The second symphony, on the other hand, is prevailingly quiet, subdued you might say, and it's much more ambiguous in mood, as you'll hear in just over an hour, it's not the kind of thing that's calculated to bring an audience to its feet, and the journey to that ending is much more complex, more enigmatic, more perplexing at first than the journey in the first symphony. There is a kind of story there that it's easy to identify on first hearing. Massive hope sets out, hits storms, there are darker reflections, and yet constantly the symphony seems to find its way back to hope, and at the end there's at least a partial sense of triumph. Here in the second symphony, well, despite the surging confidence of the opening, the sweeping, flying momentum, it's soon clear that this music has its troubled side too. We hear it definitely for the first time in the third... Later on, the first movement gets into some very strange territory. The first big section ends with more determined assertion, then fades, and next we hear eight harp harmonics like chiming bells, like the sounding of a distant clock. And then comes a complete change of mood, character, texture, everything. Eventually this blossoms into a much longer tune, if blossoms is quite the word. Elgar made a particularly memorable comment about this section. I've written the most extraordinary passage, he said, a sort of malign influence wandering through the summer night in a garden. It's an image worthy of the great contemporary ghost story writer M.R. James. Elgar loved ghost stories. In the music we can sense the exotic richness of the summer night in the garden. But at the same time, there's another note. Pulsating basses, timpani and bass drum, and a slight weird tinge to the harmonies. There's a feeling that in this seemingly beautiful, warm setting, something isn't quite right. Gradually, the first movement pulls itself out of this unsettling reverie, and the sweeping, flying momentum reasserts itself. That malign influence, as Elgar called it, is forgotten. Almost. Yet when we hear the eight harp chimes again, quietly, just before the end of the first movement, we half expect that malign influence to creep round the corner. It doesn't, but it's just enough to keep the memory despite the first movement's rousing itself magnificently at the end. So in this first movement there are elements that might well have appealed to an audience familiar with the public Elgar, the pomp and circumstance marches, the joyous London panorama of the cocaine overture, But these are mixed with different kinds of things, disturbing things, elements Helgar explicitly associated with the darker side of his character. Introspective, haunted, and yes, as that reviewer suggested, possibly pessimistic. That image of the malign influence in the garden does make one think of the story of Adam and Eve, perhaps, of the serpent in paradise. This may have struck a chord with Elgar's audience in 1911 because there was a feeling of unease abroad in the country at the time. The previous year, Edward VII had died in May, almost exactly a year before the premiere of the Second Symphony. Elgar had duly dedicated the symphony to the memory of his late majesty, King Edward VII. And there was a sense of an end of an era, that era of glad confidence and massive hope was beginning to be replaced by a sense of uncertainty, perhaps. This was the age that had seen Elgar rise to international status and assume the mantle of the Bard of Empire. But what now? And although this Second Symphony had been gestating for a long time before the King's death, the uncertainties it records, the way it has of subverting its seeming sureness, may have struck a dissonant note with that first audience. You can sense something of this in the slow movement, too. This is a great funeral march. Clearly, it's partly inspired by the slow funeral march from Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. But again, there are troubling elements. It begins with great string choral sounds, like a cathedral choir preparing for a solemn service. Then comes a lamenting, yet eminently dignified march, theme. There's some glorious music in this movement, and the climax has Elgar's signature marking nobilmente, nobly, and truly appropriate. So should we see this then as the celebration of a great regal life? Yet it, it seems that Elgar conceived this music long before the king's death. Apparently a lot of it came to him when he was still in a state of shock at the very sudden death of his close friend Alfred Rodewald in 1903. Rodemont was a cotton merchant and also a highly respected musician, a friend of Hans Richter as well as of Elgar himself. There comes a passage in this movement where the mood, you might say the emotional perspective, changes quite markedly. Up to the midpoint of the movement, this could well be music for a display of mass mourning, of public feeling. But when the march theme returns, Elgar adds a remarkable counter-melody on solo oboe. It's like an improvisation, the effect heightened by Elgar's marking espressivo molto rubato quasi ad lib, expressive with plenty of play with the tempo, almost as though improvised ad lib. So this oboe solo comes across in a kind of private tempo of its own, standing slightly apart from the regular, hushed but massive tread of the march. Let's try and think of it in cinematic terms. Imagine a film of a state funeral. Suddenly, of this the camera focuses in on one face a mourner clearly yet this one seems to stand on his or her own to be mourning something much more personal and possibly painful slow movement in more senses than one. It takes us way beyond the pomp of death, of collective grief, into something apart from the crowd, solitary, alone. The oboe subverts the tempo, which is quite a radical idea for its time, and even the mood. That subversive element is even clearer in the next movement. The scared so but actually Elgar calls it rondo, and that's highly appropriate because of the way the form seems constantly to be circling on itself, returning to the strange, puckish little theme that begins it, with its teasing cross rhythms and quicksilver changes in orchestral colour. Something smoother, more suave emerges on violins, something vaguely familiar. It turns out to be the leading phrase of that voluptuous but sinister malign influence theme from the nocturnal heart of the first movement, which now stands fully revealed. that music to a nightmare vision from Tennyson's long poem, Maud. It's a kind of horrific dream. The narrator imagines himself dead, a suicide cast into a shallow grave beneath a roadway, and the hooves of the horses beat, beat, the hooves of the horses beat, beat into my scalp and my brain. Elgar himself was particularly prone. To thoughts of suicide. But even if you didn't know the reference to Tennyson's Maud, and most of the symphony's first audience in 1911 presumably wouldn't, you can't miss the effect of something in the old sense dreadful rising through the textures of the rondo. there. I really begin to understand the critic at this point who heard pessimism and rebellion in this symphony. According to Elgar, the whole of the sorrow is smoothed out and ennobled in the last movement. Well, even some Elgarians have doubts about that. After the demonic humour and black central revelation of the Rondo, the finale's theme seems surprisingly easygoing. Is this a smoothing out? The word emollient seems rather more appropriate to me. Elgar marks it condignita, with dignity. Well, it might be, in another context, perhaps. I remember a reaction of a friend of mine on hearing this symphony for the first time on record. Is this the same piece? he asked. I can really understand his confusion. It's as though the headmaster of some grand public school had walked in on if-like scenes of carnage and chaos, and attempted to calm it all with a bland, Now settle down, boys. The second theme does seem rather more robustly positive, and it emerges very effectively from the climax of the previous theme. Has a nice Algarian marking. FF Ma Dolce. Fortissimo, but sweetly. symphony's massive hope there but the middle section of the finale brings a questioning element again and despite the massively reinforced recapitulation Elgar recommended the addition of an organ pedal at the last climax it all fades enigmatically then comes a ravishingly beautiful passage do you remember that springboard theme from the start of the symphony it seems so full of joy and confidence at first associated that theme with a motto he chose to head the score, from Shelley, Rarely, rarely comest thou, spirit of delight. In fact, that first theme is often referred to as the spirit of delight theme. Yet Shelley says that delight comes rarely. In fact, he stresses it by repeating it, as in Elgar's quotation, so however much delight there may be in the tune, there's also pathos, in the sense that delight is such a rare visitor. You remember that element of sadness that crept so quickly into the first movement, that's well before it turned malign. And when that same theme returns, beatified near the end of the symphony, with fabulous rich scoring as the melody is passed round the orchestra, you may also sense some of that element of sadness, of regret, in that rarely, rarely, especially in the way this theme seems to disappear, strangely uncompleted, unfulfilled even, at the end. strange sense of incompleteness, a lack of fulfilment, a yearning that's left suspended. All this after the darker, more questioning, even disturbing elements earlier in the symphony. So does this finale sound to you like Elgar putting on a brave face, or is it something subtler? Is this a kind of confession that this time even the most massive hope might not win the day? Well, I'll leave that for you to decide. So much depends on the performance, at the time when you hear it, and perhaps also on your feelings about Elgar and this period in his country's history. It's a period of great achievements, some of which English people can still be proud of, others, however, which may be more of a cause for shame. And what did Elgar feel about it all, this very complex, deeply divided, doubt-riddled man, for all his attempts in public to appear otherwise? Is that the Elgar who, wrote out his soul in Symphony Number no. 2. These are the kind of questions Elgar's second symphony invites. Perhaps now we can begin to see why it might have been so problematical for his first audience, why it might not have been what they wanted to hear, why the symphony has only seemed to come into its own in our time.